Here we begin. Uh, we have the two sacraments um, of what are called service, marriage, and holy orders. Um, so, bless you. What I'm, what I'm going to do, as I've done before with the sacraments, I just think it's really fascinating to look at the history and how they developed. Um, because I, it's, it's just really important, I think, to understand where the church has been and, and the progressions that we've gone through and then how we get to our, our current understanding of, of the sacraments. So um, marriage is really interesting. It's really fascinating to me because for a thousand years, the first thousand years of the church, the church was not involved in marriage, which is really interesting. Because um, you think about it now and you think about, well, Catholic, you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this. And it's got to be before a priest or a deacon or a bishop. And, you know, there's got to be witnesses and all this paperwork. And, you know, back back at the uh, beginning of, of the church, um, the Roman Empire or the Roman state uh, were the ones who officiated marriage. So the church just recognized that if people got married, that was a marriage. And it was presumed to be sacramental. But the church was not in a position of sort of officiating that, or you didn't need a church witness, you know, to say that it was a sacrament. It was just people went and they got married um, in a civil way, and then the, the church, you know, recognized that that was real. So actually, even from the very beginning, if people uh, divorced, I mean, you could get a divorce if you went to the bishop and, and get it annulled even from the beginning, but there had to be like specific reasons for that that would be approved kind of like now, um, but even back in the early church, uh, people who divorced and then remarried but didn't get that annulment or dispensation, they, they, they still, at the very beginning, wouldn't be allowed to communion. So it was considered from the very beginning to divorce and remarry outside the church, or, well, I should strike that, outside the church. Everything was outside the church. To divorce and remarry, um, you know, was considered you know, obviously to, to live outside of the church because of the Lord's injunction where he said, you know, if you divorce and marry another, you commit adultery. So the church took that very literally, which is hard. It's hard to take that symbolically anyway. You know, it's a very literal statement. So um, it, it took until uh, after Trent. So it was about the year, around the year 1000, that the church began to um, sort of officiate marriages. Now, does anybody, I've explained why this would be numerous times. Do you remember why this would be that the church would have then, so if the church allowed the Roman Empire and the state to do it for a thousand years, why it, around 1000 AD did they start to take over that juridic sort of position? Do you remember? Nope. What happened to the Roman Empire? There you go. So this is the huge thing to remember about sort of, you know, from the time of Jesus to 1000 AD, that the, this whole process of the Roman Empire collapsing affects the church in a profound way, right? And so since the Roman Empire, or the government, you know, was officiating marriages, um, and then that falls, well, there's nothing left, so the church takes it over. And this is how the two get, get wedded together. Now, what was also happening in the early centuries, I should probably stick to my notes, but in the early centuries, people, you know, in the hundreds of, of years before 1000 AD, is they would, they would get married by the state, and then that was enough. But then 
you know, sometimes there would be consultation with the bishop on who they should marry, that kind of thing. Um, so the church would be sort of involved a bit. Um, and then what began to happen is people would get married by the state, so they would be married, but then they would go to the church, the doors of the church, and receive a blessing, right? This is where the nuptial blessing, uh, you know, comes from. So they would receive a blessing from, from the bishop or, or a priest, generally the bishop. Um, but that would, not be, that would not be the same as them already being married. They would have already been considered married, okay? Um, so, you know, even in, in the, the Gospel of Matthew, um, Matthew talks about, and this has been a word that has been much debated throughout history, but Matthew talks about how somebody can divorce in, in an instance of what he calls porneia, which nobody knows what that means. Um, so <laughs> there's big debates about, there's kind of a presumption or the, the, the weight is sort of more toward adultery on that. But, but the church has never really been definitive about what that word means, um, which is just kind of one of the frustrating things. Um, there are some times when the church is so certain, you know, about things, very, very black and white, and other times she isn't, um, presumably because she can't be. Um, okay. So, um, but, but no doubt that in the early church, there were some fathers of the church who did argue for a dissolution of marriage in certain cases. Um, so Tertullian said, a marriage is permanent unless it is just justifiably dissolved. And so to marry again while a marriage is undissolved would be to commit adultery. Right? So again, my point being that in the early centuries, there was an understanding of somebody presumably got married, but then... They, were, they got divorced, and then that marriage could be dissolved, that it's something that's been with the church for a long time. It's not like a creation of the first code of canon law, which came out in the year, Joan, 1917, that's correct. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's not a creation of the modern church, you know, that it's just been the understanding that there would be, there would be good grounds that somebody, somebody's marriage could be, could be dissolved. And you know, the kind of the understanding of that as we have it today is that there was something wrong with the marriage at the beginning which rendered it non-sacramental. And so the church saying it's dissolved is the same as saying it was never a sacrament from the beginning, okay? Um, all right. So again, in the first three centuries, um, Christians married solely according to the civil laws of the time. The legal regulation of marriage and divorce was left to the government. However, bishops recognized at this time adultery as grounds for divorce. A woman was prohibited from remarriage if she left. This is just kind of an interesting misogynistic thing, um, but it's part of the history. A woman was prohibited from remarriage if she left an unfaithful spouse but there was no such regulation on men. This is from the Council of Elvira, and the same was true in the East. So remember that even though the great schism, which happened in the year, that's right, Katie, in 1054, <laughs> which officially split the East and the West, 
there's still at this early stage an Eastern church and a Western church. Okay, there's a, there's, so you'll hear, you'll hear me talk about in the East, which is basically you know, Constantinople and all of, you know, all of, uh, you know, the Holy Land and, and down to Alexandria, right, and modern-day uh, Egypt and, and those areas. That's the east, the eastern part of the Mediterranean. And then the west is um, obviously Italy, even down across to northern Africa would be the west, and then all the way up into the conquered parts of, of Europe. Um, so in the East, from the 5th to 8th centuries, the role of the priest and the church in marriage became more pronounced. Um, so by the 8th century, liturgical weddings became common in the East and were normally performed in a church. And the priest's blessing was essential for the joining of the two people in a Christian sacramental marriage. The blessing of the priest was essential in the East. Now, the Eastern Church allows for a second and even third marriage following divorce. And uh, they don't follow the whole annulment sort of process like the West does. Um, but the second and third marriages um, follow more of like a penitential, they have more of a penitential nature. So there's, there's a recognition of a failure of that first marriage, but, but people in the East, so I'm talking about Eastern Orthodox, okay, which we recognize the Eastern Orthodox as a, as a church, and that's why it's significant. Um, they were allowed to, to remarry for the sake of the, the spiritual health of the spouses. But in the West, um, um, what, what first happened uh, was to the, this is just going to sound weird when I say it, but by the end of the fourth century, Pope Siricius ordered that all clerics must have their marriages solemnized by a priest. So at that point, only priests and deacons were to make sure their marriages were blessed or made solemn. That's in the fourth century, which just sounds weird. But, you know, priests were married and deacons were married at that time. So we get to Augustine, who is responsible for a lot of attitudes in uh, Christendom, meaning Catholicism as well as Protestantism, uh, because Protestants tend to take most of their um, theology from, from Augustine. Okay, from the root, there's basically in, in Christendom, there's, there's two main roots of theology. There's the, the Augustinian line and the Thomistic line, okay? And uh, because Thomas was just so, um, there, there are so many things that as a Protestant you couldn't root out of St. Thomas because it was just so obviously Catholic. Whereas Augustine, obviously Catholic, but there are ways to take Augustine um, and use it so that it wasn't so, I mean, you didn't have to, I don't know what to say, um, I guess it would be more adaptable to Protestant theology. So, so for instance, a lot of C.S. Lewis that we study has a lot of Augustinian influence, okay? And if you go back into the philosophy, remember that Augustine is going to be more influenced by Plato because, and Neoplatonism because that's the philosophy that was around. Whereas uh, Aristotle was lost, most of Aristotle was lost in the West until the 1200s. And that's where St. Thomas Aquinas comes in, the 1200s. It was St. Albert the Great, and you know you get um, what's called scholasticism, and you get this. And that's, that's actually just a really fascinating thing to look at itself, how those two branches 
view reality differently. And it, and it has a huge impact on the way that they see, um, the way that they do theology and even see the human person. For instance, for Augustine, this is something that really Thomas wouldn't say. Um, but Augustine said marriage was good, but sex was not. All right. So, um, so for him, scripturally speaking, the existence of intercourse was the result of the fall and sexual desire was therefore evil. It was a sign of concupiscence. Concupiscence being the state of the mind and the will after the fall. Darkened intellect and a weakened will. Okay, so sexual desire was itself um, something that came from the fall and therefore even marriage and even sex within marriage was, was some kind of sin. Okay, um, the goods of marriage were children as well as faithfulness between the spouses. But he did introduce this, this concept of a sacrament. And he referred to St. Paul, who said that the bond of marriage was, was like baptism. It was similar to baptism. So as baptism formed the soul in the image of Christ's death and resurrection, so marriage formed the soul in the image of Christ's eternal union with the church. And therefore, just as Christians could not be rebaptized, they could not be remarried. Okay? Um, in 407, the Council of Carthage forbade divorced men and women to remarry. Um, Pope Innocent I said, Those who divorced by mutual consent, as the civil law allowed, were both adulterers if they remarried, regardless if they were men or women. Um, however, there were still places in the West in which people could legitimately be divorced and remarried, so long as they could demonstrate infidelity having existed in that previous marriage. But apart from Augustine, no one really spoke of marriage as a sacrament at this point, okay? Which isn't to say it wasn't. It's just that we have developing theology over the years. All right, in the Middle Ages, right, you have, as I said, after the fall of the Roman Empire, the church begins to take over society in many ways, including the regulation of marriage. Around the 8th century, there was still no liturgical ritual for marriage, um, as such. Um, but a debate came into, into uh, play which questioned what, what was it that constituted a marriage, okay? Um, according to the Roman tradition, marriage was by consent, and after consent was given, the marriage was considered legal and binding, okay? So you have two people who give mutual consent, I do, I do, it's a marriage, okay? In the in the Roman tradition. However, in the Frankish and Germanic tradition, the giving of consent came at betrothal, and the marriage was not considered to be completed or consummated until the first act of intercourse had taken place. So in, you know, further up into the continent, they, they would give mutual consent at when people were betrothed. So in, in Rome, they would give mutual consent, they were married. Up, up in you know, further in the continent, they would give mutual consent. They were only engaged, essentially. And they didn't believe that a couple was actually married until, uh, until the marriage was consummated sexually. So, how did the church resolve this? Um, ratum et consummatum. It said, basically, it split the middle, very Sol Solomonic, 
uh, solution and said, okay, both. So according to you know, the, the current practice, it takes both. An unconsummated marriage is not considered a marriage. It has to be consummated. In fact, a man cannot get married in the church if he cannot consummate the marriage physically. The couple can't get married if he can't consummate the marriage physically. I know. It's a question, though. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a questionnaire that people have to a- answer that I go through. It's a prenuptial inquiry, and there's all these questions. And one of the questions is about that. You know, can, are you and your spouse physically able to uh, consummate this marriage? And if they're not, then we've got to pump the brakes you know, and figure that out. Now, there's all kinds of questions that can spring from that which get very detailed, but that might be best answered at different times. Um, (laughs) But that's an essential deal here, okay? Now, Gratian, the first great canon lawyer, church lawyer, uh, around 1140, uh, published his collection of canonical regulations. And so he's the one who said, we need to harmonize these two traditions. Consent contracted a marriage and sexual intercourse completed or consummated it. His opinion was that a marriage could be legally dissolved before it was consummated, but not afterward, okay? Because it wasn't considered. um, So if people were to apply for an annulment, you know, one of the questions on the annulment paperwork is, was this marriage consummated? You know, and you would say, well, how in the world? I've actually seen it when I was, uh, uh, I've, been involved in marriage cases for a lot of years and so I've I've read a lot of them and I've I've seen at least one instance where it didn't happen well that makes it pretty easy to to get an annulment because you know even though consent was given there is no consummation of the marriage which is an essential part of marriage um, okay yes So the question is, uh, what is the connection between the, n- the necessity of consummation? Yeah. It's not, uh, I mean, yes, in, in the sense that a marriage needs to be uh, consummated insofar as marriage, one of the ends of marriage is the beginning of rearing in children. But, um, but, but sexual intercourse within marriage is seen as a good in itself. And so, um, so even if people are beyond the point at which they can have children, they still need to be able to physically um, perform the act, no matter how inadequately that might happen. <laughs> Without getting into details. And all the women say, it's always inadequate. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Can't help myself. That's going on the recording. I'm keeping that. Keeping that. It's going to be jumped up to 500. Yeah, it's going to we're going to get a lot of wow. Yeah, well, not so much cuz I'm embarrassed but because I I think I'm really funny. Um So Yeah. Okay, so so as we get further into the, the Middle Ages, um, 
you know, there, there was this, this kind of big focus on just legal, legality, you know, consent and consummation. But Augustine's views begin to be rediscovered regarding marriage as a sacrament. Um, that, that marriage was a sign, and this comes from Paul, um, marriage was a sign of the union between Christ and his church and a sacred pledge between husband and wife. Um, and with this, the Catholic concept of sacramental marriage had become the theological basis for the canonical prohibition against divorce. The, the, the idea of what a marriage is, that it's this union that resembles the marriage between Christ and his church, it's, it's binding two people together in a one flesh union. This becomes the basis of, of you know, the prohibition against divorce, that it's like binding two people together as one person, as one flesh, and to tear them apart is, is to kill, you know. So it comes from this theological understanding. Um, so St. Thomas, who Father John likes a little bit more than St. Augustine, um, you know, has a much more positive view toward human nature and reality and the rest, because that would be in the line of Aristotle, etc. So for, for Thomas, the sacrament also gave a positive assistance toward holiness in the married state of life. Um, now, the theology of the marriage, as we move forward into the 20th century, a lot of times you're, when we talk about stuff, we're going to, you know, we go to scholasticism in the 1200s, and we get to the Council of Trent in the 1500s, and then there's this skip whenever, we're, whenever I'm talking, you know, whenever we talk kind of about history, a lot of times there's a 500-year skip into the 20th century. And that's because Trent was this incredibly stabilizing force in the church, and it basically kind of, you know, rigorously cemented our theology for 500 years. And so it took until the 20th century for there to be sort of new life in, in theology and a new way of looking at things. And I've talked about that in, in other sacraments, how we, we discovered all of this, th we had all these historical, you know, discoveries, and we looked back at, you know, liturgy in the, in the early church and said, well, maybe we should in incorporate more of that. Because the church recognized that after, after 1,900 years or 1,800 years, that um, a lot of things changed, you know, uh, regarding the sacraments, et cetera, and that there was a value in getting back to our, our original understanding. Um, so we get into the 20th century, um, and the theology of, of marriage at the beginning was that the primary purpose of marriage was the procreation and education of children. Its secondary purpose was the spiritual perfection of the spouses by means of the grace of the sacrament, the mutual support they gave to each other, and the morally permissible satisfaction of their sexual needs. That was secondary. But during the 20th century, as we move further, um, those ends or goods of marriage become equitable. Okay? It's not like marriage and children are, are you know, raising children, beginning and rearing of children is first, and then the mutual love of the spouse is a second, it becomes an equal part of, of marriage. Um, and, and that's what you see in, in the writings about marriage, et cetera. Um, so um, just some of the attitudes regarding marriage uh, that, that changed in the 20th century. Um, prior, marriage was seen as a social duty 
it became seen to be seen as an individual right. This is not necessarily the church. This is just sort of attitudes in the culture. Prior um, to the 20th century, marriage was done in compliance with parents' wishes, uh, but it became to be contracted because of personal love. Um, prior to the 20th century, since a lot of marriages were arranged, love was expected to begin after the wedding. Now it was expected to precede the wedding, which obviously as those social attitudes change and customs change, it, the theology of marriage changes subtly as well. And the way that the church prepares people for marriage and, and looks at marriage changes. Um, marriage was, was coming to be seen mainly as an expression of love between a man and a woman, and the family was no longer needed to educate children the way things used to be. That's a bad sentence. Um, basically, in the culture, the focus really, really shifted to be, to be more on the, the husband and wife and the mutual love of the spouses, and the, the education of, and, and even beginning of children really became secondary to that. I'm not saying that's what the church teaches. She doesn't. The church teaches that they ought to be equal. But as the culture has continued, as we know in Western civilization, the beginning and rearing of children is clearly not as primary because if you look at, especially in Western Europe, replacement rates, et cetera, um, if you look at Japan, I mean, Japan is, is because uh, they, don't, they don't let in uh, very many immigrants, and they're dying out. Their, their culture is, is incredibly, I mean, at an incredible rate. Italy is really bad, um, you know, as far as how many children. Even when I was there, I mean, it was rare to see um, an Italian couple with a child. And if they were with a child, they had one child. And it was usually a young woman with an older man. It was like, it was like uh, yeah, because in that, economically in that, in that uh, society, young men could not make enough money. It's, a, it's basically a socialistic country, and they couldn't make enough money to provide for a family. Only older men could. So you would have younger women marrying older men, Ted, you know, 20-year-old woman. And um, probably, you know, more in, into like 50s and, and that kind of thing, you know, 40s and 50s, because by that time, men had, were making enough money but, but uh, young men into their well into their 30s are still living at home and they just can't afford to. So economically, the, it's, just, it's, it's so bad that, that people just can't, it's hard to have kids, you know? It's just, so it's not just attitudes, there's a, pr there's a pr pragmatism to it. You know, if you really cannot afford to have children. And then also, and I'll tell you a little bit of salacious information about Italy too, so it's also a, a sort of common practice that because a woman marries an older man, um, she marries him for stability, but she still has sort of a, a what shall we say, a, a social life apart from the, the old man at home. And it's just kind of understood that that's, because obviously you have a 20-something-year-old woman with a 60-year-old man, which, which is kind of odd to see, but once you're in Italy for a while, it's not so odd anymore. Um, yeah, so that, that's also really kind of weird. Anyway, it's on the podcast. More people are going to listen next week. <laughs> is that social, social, or male indirect? 
Yep. Yeah, it's all of it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all uh, all kinds of social interaction. Um, I, no, because I, you're not going to see a lot of other children because you just don't see a lot of children. There's just not a lot of children. Maybe one, you know, and that's it. It's so rare to see. To see, I you know, I don't know so much about into the countryside. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's radically. If you go online and look at um, the uh, the birth rate in in Italy and and some of the other countries, um, it's 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 very. I mean, it's in the it's it's a little bit over one, but it, the replacement rate is not enough right now. Which is one of the reasons. You know, I think sometimes we wonder, well, why is why is Germany and some of these other countries allowing in so many refugees? Because they need to keep their society going. They don't because their 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 own people are not having children, so a lot of the countries over there are actually there's funny commercials. I remember seeing one funny I can't remember it's like a Scandinavian country and it was like a a public service commercial encouraging, you know, children have you know, yeah get go away and have a romantic rendezvous and have more children. I mean it was one of those kind of commercials. It's really pretty funny. Um, but the, and then governments, you know, have been giving in, in a lot of the different countries lots of tax incentives and, you know, really trying to encourage the people to have kids because it's a, you can't maintain your culture or your economy if you don't have people, you know. The people are, there's no people. So, um, and the same thing's happening here. It's just not yet at that rate, you know. We still have a, a, a fairly low yeah, and that, that, I mean, then, of course, abortion is legal in so many countries, including our own, which, which has a huge, has a huge, is a huge, fa yeah, impact. Okay, so let's see. All right, so let's just go to some of the, the basics, then, of, of what constitutes the sacrament. For, for two Catholics to get married, I'm going to be very specific here, okay? For two Catholics to get married... To each other, it needs to be done in a well. It needs to be done in the presence of the church's minister, which can be a priest, obviously then a bishop, or a deacon. So it has to be witnessed by an official, you know, from the church, priest or deacon. Um, and you know, of course, they also have to be free to marry, meaning they they can't have they 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 couldn't have had a previous marriage um, without an annulment. Okay, so presuming the previous marriage thing is out the window, two Catholics can marry each other. There need to be two witnesses, but, you know, essentially all it requires is the consent of the spouses in the presence of the church's minister. So when we're talking about form and matter of the sacrament, words and stuff, remember, words and stuff, what are the words necessary to make a marriage? No, not I pronounce you. The vows. Yeah, the vows. Okay, and this is the reason why. What, are, what is the stuff? What is the matter? What is the physical stuff of the sacrament? Nope. Lorianne? The two people. The two people are the actual matter of the sacrament, which also 
you know, helps us to understand why consummation is so essential, okay? Because the two people come together. They are the material that are bound together by grace and formed into, into one new person. Um, that's what makes the marriage. That's the form of the stuff, the vows and the, and the two people. But it needs to be done in the, in the presence of the church's minister. Now, a, a Catholic can marry a, a Christian, a non-Catholic Christian, um, but they, there needs to be um, a, what's called a dispensation from the bishop. It's called a disparity of cult. You know, you're marrying a different faith, somebody from a different faith. But that's something that has changed, of course, in the church's practice. Um, so a Catholic can marry a baptized non-Catholic, and it's a sacrament with that permission of the bishop. But it has to be done in a church, and the non-Catholic actually has to sign saying that they will consent to the children to be raised Catholic, which isn't to say that they have to do it themselves, because you know if somebody is a different faith, you wouldn't expect them to say, if they don't believe in what the church teaches, you wouldn't expect them to tell the children, you know, I, you know, I believe this also. Um, but they wouldn't. But it, they would have to say that they're not going to stand in the way of it. You know, they're going to be supportive of the children being raised Catholic. A Catholic can marry an unbaptized person. Okay, again with permission, but this is not a sacrament. Because what does it take for people to receive sacraments? Baptism, right? Baptism is the doorway to all the sacraments. You have to be baptized to be able to receive the grace of all subsequent sacraments for there to be a sacrament. So um, what this is called is a natural bond of marriage, okay? Uh, but it's not a sacrament. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. Great question. If a, if a Catholic marries somebody who's, who's non-Catholic or unbaptized, yes, as long as they do it the right way, they're married in the church, you know, they, they can receive all the sacraments. Great question. Um, if, yes? Yes. Okay. Great question. So um, let's say two Catholics, we're going to get to some really interesting scenarios. Um, so let's say two Catholics get married, and this happens a lot, two Catholics, or, or even a, a Catholic and a non-Catholic, or, you know, like a baptized. So a Catholic marries a baptized person, and they, e either situation is the same, they want, they want it to be a sacrament. Because for a Catholic, it has to be witnessed by a, by a Catholic uh, cleric, okay? So um, there's just a process. It's like, kind of like the regular process. The presumption of the church is that the people are only civilly married but not sacramentally married. So in a sense, it's not really a marriage because the church only recognizes sacraments. And so you can say, well, but wait a second, but people are, they obviously got married. They went to a justice of the peace. They're married. The point is that the church doesn't deal with Remember, the, it, it kind of got split in America, especially. The, um, the church only recognizes sacraments. It doesn't, do, it doesn't really recognize whatever happens just with the state. 
but that's not completely true, and I'll get to that, because um, sometimes the church does. But, uh, right? but uh, so anyway, so let's say two Catholics married outside the church, they want to get, they basically want to have a sacramental marriage. They just go to the priest, and um, it's kind of the same thing, you know, um, as if they went to the priest before they got married. Um, and there's, there's a process, you know, there, there's some preparation uh, that they need to go through. And that, that's going to depend on their age. So let's say, let's say a married, uh, let's say a couple wants to get married in the church, and they've been, they've been civilly married but not sacramentally married, but they've been together 30 years, all right? Well, the priest is normally going to treat that couple differently than, let's say, a couple who've been married civilly for three years. You know, the process will probably be a little bit more involved for, the, for a younger couple because after 30 years, you figure, well, they're probably going to stay together. You know, they've, they've done most of that work already. Yeah, they've done most of the work already. So the preparation work for getting married, whether it's two people who are civilly married or two people who are unmarried in any way, um, you know, has to do with uh, educating them on what marriage is, you know, helping them to grow in faith with each other helping them with things like um, communication skills. So one of the, one of the, the, it's not a test, it's like an inquiry, you answer questions, and basically it asks questions of each person, like, you know, do you believe in spanking your children, yes or no? And if one says yes and the other says no, then father's like, oh, okay, let's talk about that. You know, you should probably figure that out. You know, it's that kind of stuff. So it's not like, because here's the thing, the, the church can't really, like, I can't really deny somebody marriage so long as they're properly disposed. So, so long as they, they don't have a previous marriage, people have a natural right to marriage. So we can put them through a process, you know, and we can help them. And that's what the whole thing's about. This preparation process is to, is to help. Yeah, yeah, the folk, you know, trying to help them to, to grow in some different ways. Uh, maybe look at some things that they haven't been looking at or, or talk about some, some, communication skills, that kind of thing. Um, but ultimately, even if, even if I, at the end of that process, think, yeah, I don't, I don't know if this is going to work. I mean, if the people, I might, I might say that in a gentle way, you know, I'm, I, I have some concerns, but if they still want to get married, they get married. Because ultimately, if they're free to marry, it's, it's up to the spouses. Now, remember what I said about the church doesn't recognize civil marriages. That's true for Catholics. However, the church recognizes um, that two baptized Christians, if they get married by a justice of the peace or Elvis in Vegas, in the most ridiculous ceremony, the church presumes that's a sacrament. Okay? And the reason why is because the church holds Catholics to a particular standard that it doesn't hold um, non-Catholics too. I mean, you would never expect non-Catholics to get married by a Catholic priest, right? Um, nor would they presumably want to. Um, so they go and they get married, and, and you know, they get married by a, by a Protestant minister, or they get married in Vegas, or they get married by Justice of the, justice of the Peace. If they're baptized, because it's the, the consent of the spouses, and the couple have a right to marriage, a natural right to marriage, the presumption is that that's a sacrament. And this is why if, um, if a Catholic wants to marry a non-Catholic who was married previously, that's why they, they need to get an annulment also, is because the presumption is that was a sacrament. 
which seems unfair, and maybe it is unfair, but, but the, it all goes back to, you know, what do we believe contracts a marriage, you know? And uh, since we believe a sacramental marriage uh, can happen between two baptized people who give consent and also consummate the marriage, then the only difference is uh, the relationship between a Catholic and the church, which is namely an understanding of that authority of the church. But if somebody doesn't have that understanding of the authority of the church, then through really, in a sense, no fault of their own, they have contracted a sacramental marriage. So this is one of those sacraments we presume is valid in Protestant you know, communions. We believe that those are real sacramental marriages, just like we believe their baptisms are real baptisms. We don't rebaptize somebody who was baptized under the formula with the right form and the right matter, the right words and the right stuff. We don't rebaptize them. Um, but let's see. Yeah. Yep. So a Protestant gets married by the justice of the peace. Mm -hmm. It's still a sacramental marriage? Yes. If two, if two non-Catholic baptized, baptized persons get married by anybody that lawfully can marry them, right. um, it's presumed to be sacramental. But if a Catholic goes to Vegas, and by the way, I mean, if, if I were getting married, I would get married by Elvis. <laughs> I mean, if I could do it, because I'm a huge Elvis fan, and I just think it'd be really cool. I'm not at all joking. Um, so, you know, some people go and they do a renewal of vows in the church, and, you know, I would go and do it with Elvis. Um, but I'm not married and I'm not looking to, but, uh, which is probably, <laughs> just so you know, it's a good thing that's on tape. It's a good thing that's on tape. Yeah, it's too late for me. I got a dog. I don't need a wife. Dog is enough trouble. I do not mean that misogynistically. I don't. I do not. That is not a slant against women. It's, it's more about, that's all I can handle is a dog. Yes. Say again. The correct so the, the the correct words. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. No other words. So you can't do Creator, Redeemer, Sanctifier. You can't do any other. It has to be the the triune threefold formula of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with water uh, poured over the head, or sprinkled, or you know. So like a I've baptized infants who are who are maybe going to die in a children's hospital and you just use a little bit of, of water, um, even just, just a drop, you know. Say again? Correct, yeah, if the person who's receiving, it has to be the one who's, who's uh, performing the baptism that says the words. Um, and anybody can baptize. Even non-baptized persons, atheists can baptize as long as they, you know, they, they believe they're doing, they're doing this for the person. So, so nurses, you know, I've talked to nurses in hospitals and they've, they've, they've asked, well, what happens if, you know, well, you baptize them. Just get some water, baptize, you know. Anybody can baptize in an emergency. In an emergency, not normal. I mean, the church would say, you know, don't baptize people normally on your own. It's actually forbidden to baptize at home. Um, 
All right, but that's a whole different issue. Okay. Uh, the other thing too, you know, I don't know if this comes up. I don't know if you have questions about like, because now, you know, with uh, with same-sex marriage, right? That becomes an issue now in our culture. I mean, I presume the church's position on that is pretty clear. Um, in the beginning, God created man, male and female. He created them. Um, you know, scripturally, it's it's the the scriptures are clear that marriage is between a man and a woman that there are only two genders, there's not gender fluidity, that gender is connected to nature, okay? Um, that uh, a person, I was reading something, reading something today and I was saying, well, the, the person, the person, you know, decided to change their, oh yeah, I was reading something on uh, statistics with transgenderism and amongst high school students and, um, you know, talking about how, how um, some students will, will um, change the gender they were given at birth. Well, you know, gender is in your DNA, all right? So, so this is what, this, this could be a whole class really on the whole nature issue, but um, the church recognizes a connection between what you are and who you are so that a person is never separate from their body. What's really happening is the whole Cartesian dilemma all over again, you know, Descartes, um, you know, just identifying who he is with his mind, you know, apart from his body, that he's a, you know, he's just sort of a ghost in a body or a mind in a body. It's the whole mind-body problem all over again. So when people say that you can change your gender just based on your psychology and that that is not attached to your, phys your physiology, what they're really saying, and this hasn't really come up, but what they're really saying philosophically is who I am is unconnected from what I am. And, and they split the who from the what. No longer is the person connected to their physiology or their body. They become disembodied people. Does that make sense? Because if, okay, if, if I'm born male, because you're only born with two X's or an X and a Y chromosome, right? I mean, it's, it's in the DNA. You're one or the other. Now, there can be chromosomal and, and physiological abnormalities, but those are clearly abnormalities, and that's not what you know, transgenderism asserts. Transgenderism says, in fact, that it has nothing to do with your biology, that it has to do with your, your emotions, with your psychology, and with your own subjective determination of what you want to be, so that a person can disassociate their mind and their psychology or, you know, from their own bodies. So who that, does that make sense? So who they are becomes just this, this mind or this, or their, their, uh, you know, their, their, their psychic, you know, qualities detached from their bodies. So then the who becomes just this non-physical entity. But the church says, no, we're, a person is both and, right? Your spirit and body, your, your mind and body. It's an integrated whole. And so the body actually gives data. It tells you something about who and what you are, that one should never dissociate the two. To dissociate the two is actually, is actually dehumanizing, okay? So that, that when, when the church, okay, so I got off on transgenderism. So then we go back to uh, what does it mean to be married? Well, what it means to be married is male and female come together in, in a union. Male and female are complementary not just 
emotionally and psychologically, but also physiologically, right? And that is ra rather, I mean, the plumbing is pretty clear how that works, right? And um, what, the, what the body does with the sexual organs and how they operate and how they work says something about how we're designed. What a, what a postmodern or modern will say is, no, the what and how we're created says nothing about how that needs to be used, all right? How, how the sexual organs, how they work, says nothing about how I've, I can just use them any way I want to, right? But, but the church says, no, 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 that we're, we're actually created by a des somebody who designed us with intentionality. It's not just chance. And that's what ultimately it gets reduced to. So if our physical properties are just chance and they can, we can determine um, what, you know, how to use them and, and what they actually mean. So to be born with man parts doesn't mean I'm a man, right? Or it means I'm born, I'm born male, but I'm not masculine. I identify as feminine. You know, the church would say, well, no, you can't, you can't dissociate like that. And in fact, you know, even psychology used to call this, you know, talk about this as far as, as real psychological pathology. Um, just like it did with homosexuality. It, it talked about that as pathology. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to argue for it, although I, I would argue for it, but that's not my point that I'm making now. Um, so when it comes then back to something like gay marriage, the church would just say that's not marriage because you can't, you can't join what, the, the state is not the arbiter of marriage, God is. Just like the state, the state, um, the state doesn't give freedom, all right? A correct understanding of what the state does under Catholic theology is that the state does not give freedom, it protects freedom that a person already has. This is the constitution, right? Right? That, that uh, we're born, you know, or we're created, not born, we're created with inalienable rights, bestowed upon us by our creator, not by the state. The state doesn't bestow any of this. The state is supposed to preserve it and protect it, right? All right. So it's the same thing with marriage. The state doesn't create marriage. God creates marriage. Um, so anyway, now that's, now in saying all that, a pastoral approach to, I mean, I have friends who are in gay marriages. I know people, I have plenty, plenty of friends, not a lot, but I have a few friends who are homosexual. Um, I do know somebody who's gone through sexual reassignment surgery. So pastorally speaking, you know, how we deal with people is different than what we teach about the issue, right? So always, when we're dealing with people, we have to remember we're dealing with people who have emotions, who, who, who need love, who need care, and who need concern. And this can be difficult because um, usually whenever all the stuff that I just said, if it gets out on the internet, which it will, um, but I'm not important enough for it to, to get on, you know, all kinds of sites and all the rest. I'm already out there on other issues, but... Um, but if it got out there, I, I would be accused of hate speech. You know, I'd be accused of hating transgender persons or, or homosexuals and, and all the rest. And in some countries, I have friends who work on this stuff. Um, in some countries, what I just said could get me in jail, could land me in jail. 
Um, Canada is pretty bad about this. Um, a lot of European states, they're, they're, they're sending uh, priests, ministers to jail for saying what I just said um, about those issues. Um, so, okay, I should move on to holy orders, okay? Even though we may have some, some more questions. Remember, you can always email me. Feel free to email me. It's, it's, it's on the website. It's, it's on the bulletin. Um, Father Eric at diocesephoenix.org. You can always email me with questions if you have further questions, suggestions, you know. Um, let's see. Okay, so holy orders. The, um, in the beginning, there were only bishops, and they were called episcopoi. That is Greek, um, and that is plural Greek, episcopoi, bishops. And uh, in the early church, uh, bishops were the successors of the apostles. All right, you have that even in the, um, you have that even in the in the New Testament, right? The selection of, uh, of who's the, the apostle that replaced? Was it a Jude? Was it Jude? Who replaced uh, uh, the guy who hung himself? What's his name? Thaddeus. Thaddeus, Jude Thaddeus. Yeah, yeah, right. He's the guy who replaced uh, Matthias. Matthias. That's it, Matthias. Matthias. He replaced Judas. It's on your birthday. So, so the, the apostles clearly believed that they, they could select somebody to be another apostle, to be a bishop, right? It's in the scriptures. And that's what they did. And that's also in the scriptures, that they picked other bishops, other episcopoi, okay? And because as the churches grew, they keep popping up all over the place. You need a bishop in that city and a bishop in that city and a bishop in that city. And, and in those days, you had one church in that city, and then maybe a couple churches, and so the bishop could take care of it. But then there became too much work, and so the bishops couldn't focus on prayer and preaching and studying, so they said, we need help. And so what they decided to do was to ordain men who could help them but did not have the powers to do the sacraments like they did. Um, so the, the diaconate was instituted. And so now you have diaconoi, helpers. And so the, the, the earliest uh, deacons were focused on, you know, distributing uh, the collection to, the, to the, the needy and to the widows and orphans and just sort of helping to manage a lot of the temporal affairs of the church. All right, so after the Edict of Milan, which was the year, that's right, 313, the Edict of Milan constantly, uh, uh, Constantine, with his edict, made Christianity legal in the entire Roman Empire. So now, you know, the, the uh, Christianity just spreads like wildfire through the Roman Empire, especially because Constantine, um, even though he doesn't convert right away, his mother did, and, you know, he clearly is in favor of it. So, hey, you know, the emperor's doing it, we should do it too, which was a very common practice, which continued all into the Middle Ages that whatever whatever, uh, and into like the Protestant Reformation, whatever your ruler was, whatever religion they were, you were, because that's just, you know, what you would do. So, um, so the churches begin to spread. There's all these churches popping up, and, and the bishops are like, we can't do it all. I mean, they didn't say it like this, but I'm just abbreviating. We can't do all this stuff. <laughs> we need people to help us, but we don't want to ordain more bishops because they have all the authority, 
And if we ordain more Episcopoi, um, then they're just like us. And so let's ordain men who are like us, but they don't have all of our authority. They basically are under us, and they're called presbyters, the presbyteroi, presbyters. That's also in the New Testament. So um, the, the priesthood um, is instituted, um, and priests are able to uh, say mass, and they're not really involved in confessions yet. Actually, I have a list of this. Um, um, what the priest could and could not do. Oh, yeah, this is interesting. So um, priests were not allowed to perform every ministry. They presided over the Eucharist and would baptize once a year, um, and presumably at the, like the Easter Vigil. Now, the bishop would send a piece of consecrated bread from his altar to each surrounding church to be dropped in the chalice during the Eucharistic service. Do you ever wonder why at that part? It's called the fractioning when I break, and then I put a little piece in the chalice, bloop. There you go. So that was a sign of, of sort of his authority, but also the connection between that church and the bishop. Okay. Um, bishops would reserve for themselves what came to be called confirmation. Um, priests could not consecrate the chrism that's used for um, post-baptismal anointing, confirmation, and, and ordination. Um, priests could not ordain ministers. Uh, they were not allowed to assign public penances or reconcile penitents unless they were on their deathbed. So this is early, early church. Um, in some places, presbyters were even forbidden to preach without express permission from their bishop, which is still kind of true. Like, you have to have permission to preach, hear confessions. And there are many different times throughout the, uh, throughout the church's history where somebody would get ordained and they could say Mass, but it would... Uh, they would have to sort of prove themselves before they were allowed to hear confessions because, you know, you want to kind of wait until, well, look, there's a difference. There's a difference in the way that I exercised my ministry at 46 than there was at 29 when I got ordained, you know. And I'd much rather you get counsel from me now than when I was 29. <laughs> so I'm just speaking from my own experience of myself. Um, so there's a reason why, you know, somebody would, would maybe have to earn that. Now, there's, there's much greater preparation now before somebody gets ordained, so presumably that helps the situation. Um, but I'm sure you all know that you probably have, a, have experience of going to a really young priest and then a middle-aged priest and then, like, a really old, really wise priest. I always go to them. I mean, you can go to me, too. But if you find an old, wise priest, go to him because... <laughs> It's just, it's just, it's, it's really cool. Unless they're really upset and jaded and cynical, then forget it. But yeah, if they're cranky, yeah, forget it. Um, so because of this, because you have priests then filling the gap, the diaconate disappears, okay? Sort of pragmatically. Um, you just don't need them. Um, so they disappear. Um, now, celibacy, um, it's important to touch on that. Where does that come from? Now remember that all throughout the ancient world, it was not, um, it was not, it was it was very common for priests or even priestesses to make vows of celibacy. This is something that's been with human history for, you know, from the beginning. It's just a common thing that when somebody dedicates their life to God or the gods, they dedicate their whole life to God or the gods. You know, the service of the divine 
Um, it's difficult to serve the divine and also have a family. It just is. Um, so it's kind of a very human sort of a reality. Um, however, in the church, how did this work? Well, obviously, you know, everyone could marry at the beginning. Bishops, priests, deacons. Um, however, in the ancient world, um, purity was, was closely connected to holiness. Um, so we just had a, we just had a, a feast of St. somebody... Monday. No, it was Miki and Companions. Yesterday it was. That was today. It was it was a young virgin, and so there's actually like martyr Agatha. Yeah, yeah. So so in the early church, um, you know, virginity celibacy was was connected to purity. Again, go back to what the way that Augustine talked about sexual desire. That was a that was a consequence of the fall, that somebody would have desire, because that's what Genesis says about women. You now will have desire for your husband, right? So the understanding of Augustine was that desire is something disordered because of the fall. Again, we don't have to agree with him on this. This is just where it comes from. And because of that, then, somebody who remained pure and celibate, there was a greater holiness to living that kind of life. This is just kind of how it was understood, okay? So then, even in the early church when celibacy was not mandatory, it was, it was held up in, in higher esteem. So people would, priests would elective, electively, you know, choose celibacy at times. Um, in the West, through the end of the fourth century, clerics were to stop living with their wives. <laughs> or, or at least stop having sexual relations. It's just an interesting statement, right? So by the end of the 300s, you can't live with your wife anymore. But if you're going to live with her, you, you, yeah, brother and sister, that's it. Um, thus it was, obviously, it just became easier for clerics not to marry to begin with. And so the ideal of continence gradually became an ideal of celibacy. All right? um, however, the ideal of celibacy didn't really take hold uh, yet, although it would ebb and flow until the 11th century when it became mandatory. So it wasn't until the 11th century that it became mandatory. And it's not a doctrine, so it's something that right now is mandatory, but um, currently in particular cases, priests don't have to be celibate. Usually those cases have to do with a priest who was, it's usually Anglican. They were Anglican, they have a family, um, so they're obviously married, they were ordained Anglican, and then there's special provisions, especially for Anglicans, to become Catholic, and then obviously they, can, they don't have to take a, a vow of celibacy because they're married. Although after their wife dies, well, presuming their wife dies, presuming their wife dies before, before they do, then they would have to, they couldn't get remarried, they would have to remain celibate. Deacons currently can get married before they're ordained, um, but if, they, uh, if their wife dies after ordination, they cannot get remarried, um, or, if they, or both, you know, if they were to get divorced, they couldn't remarry either. <clears throat> um, the Council of Constantinople, so this is 692, decreed that married men could become clerics, but unmarried men who were ordained must remain celibate, which is still the way it is in the, in the, Eastern, in the Eastern Rite, in the Eastern Church. You can, you can get married before you're ordained, 
And then obviously you can stay married. But if you are not married before you get ordained, you cannot get remarried after you're ordained. Um, let's see. I'm just going to skip a few things here. Um, generally speaking, it became, well, it became the norm that only celibate priests or widowers would be allowed to become bishops. And the, that norm has stayed in effect in the Eastern Church today. Um, so with the fall of the Roman Empire, because of that, right, the, the church takes over all these administrative functions within society, etc. And so their role becomes more and more administrative in nature. And um, th so you get a whole lot of power that's consolidated with the bishops, um, both civil power as well as, of course, uh, religious power. Um, let's see. So, well, let's save that. Save that question. Um, so, the what would happen is that because you have this connection between the church and maintaining the administrative realities of society, bishops not only held religious power, but they also held lands and estates and the rest. So bishops were allowed to hold property and gained income from subjects just like any medieval lord. Um, and in fact, even though the church preferred celibate bishops during this time um, to keep the property intact and uh, to keep the bishops from establishing uh, dynasties, uh, but since the church and state were often related by blood, it was sometimes mutually advantageous to allow a bishop's son to succeed him to the episcopacy, or else the bishop's children might be landless and reduced to peasantry. So one of the big issues had to do, and one of the reasons why the, another reason why the church moved to mandatory celibacy is, what do you do with, if you have, you know, if you own property, um, and it's your own property, then, and you have children, how is that, what belongs to the church, what belongs to you? And back in, the, back in that time, it got really, really messy. So to, to avoid all of that problem, all of those problems, since the idea was already celibacy and that was the preferred practice, then that was another thing that, that moved the church to um, mandating celibacy. Um, so it was uh, the first Lateran Council, and there are four Lateran Councils. The Lateran, St. John Lateran, is out is uh, to the s southeast of Rome. The Laterani family, okay, that's where you get the, the name Lateran. So the, the Bishop of Rome, his, his Episcopal See or his cathedral is actually St. John Lateran. It's not St. Peter's. So just like the... You know, our, our cathedral is St. Simon and Jude in Phoenix. The cathedral of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, isn't St. Peter's. It's St. It's John Lateran, okay? Um, anyway, so there are four Lateran councils. That's where they took place is on that property. The first, and this is 1123 to 1215, the first council pro prohibited those in holy orders from marrying and ordered all married priests to renounce their wives and do penance. Let me read. Let me read that again. <laughs> the first letter in council prohibited those in holy orders from from marrying 
and it ordered all married priests to renounce their wives and do penance. As if they weren't already doing penance. Ah, I gotta throw one out for the guys. Is that the second one? All right, I'll turn the tables. I gotta make sure the women are always in the most favorable position. It's just, it's a better position. Okay, the Second Lateran Council, 15 years later, declared, declared that marriages of clerics were not only illegal, but invalid. Okay, so you see they're kind of ramping up. Um, and so since the hierarchy had taken control of marriage right around 1,000, right, it could now legally control clerical marriage. I mean, you've got to remember at this time, it, you know, you hear something like that, they could control clerical marriage because it's, I don't want to say it's lawless society, but, but there's all kinds of, craziness going on. I mean, priests are getting married, they're having kids on the side. I mean, it's, it's lawlessness. So, you know, bishops are constantly trying to rein all this stuff in. Um, okay. Um, so then there became the question, when is a man actually ordained? Was it at the imposition of hands, the vesting, putting the vestments, the anointing of hands with the, the chrism, or the handing over of the chalice and patent? which part of the, the ritual was it? Um, and, you know, there were big debates about, about that question. Form and matter, were the form and matter. Um, let's see. Okay, so in the later Middle Ages, this is an interesting factoid. In the later Middle Ages, um, the whole thing of mass intentions happened. So people could all of a sudden apply they could pay, we still do this today, they could pay, you know, $10, they're using dollars, but whatever, they could, whatever currency, they give $10, and then a mass would be said for those intentions, and the money would go to, you know, to the church, etc. So what the church started doing, it really started promoting all of these intentions, and then they were like, because a priest could only say one mass a day, who's limited in saying one mass a day, then they're like, we need more priests. So they started ordaining all these priests. So when you go to Europe and you see a church with all these altars, that's why. Why do you need a hundred some altars, you know, in a church? Because they're doing all, every priest is doing their daily mass with the intention, the money is collected by the church, some of it is given to these priests. Well, the problem was that the church was just ordaining a bunch of uneducated guys to say the mass. So they're like, here, we're going to ordain you a priest. Here, we'll teach you how to say the words. They would say the words. You know, I mean, this is kind of ridiculous. But they would say the words, they collect the money, and then they would go home to their family. Did you catch that? So even though the church completely outlawed marriage and said it's completely null and void, when they started ordaining all of these individual priests who were like just some dude off the street, <laughs> you want to be a priest? Sure. You know, and uh, they, they weren't well educated and they obviously, you know, they had they had families, they had kids and all the rest. OK. Um, and, you know, of course, then there's all kinds of corruption. Right. I mean, bishops and corruption are pretty intimately tied throughout the history of the church. It just, it just is because you have power. I mean, um, that is a historical fact. It is a historical fact. And not just in our day and age, in the entire history of the church. So if you figure, okay, the bishops first started out as just spiritual fathers and pastors. 
But then Rome falls, and who fills in the gap? Well, the only thing keeping society going is, is the church. So the church starts to fill the gap in administrating secular society as well. Well, now you start blending religious power and, and earthly power, and you get corruption because you get a bunch of bishops, not really priests. Priests were largely you know, poor, impoverished, and you know, whatever. But bishops, you know, they were holding lands and titles and getting wealthier and wealthier. Um, and this had a huge impact on why Martin Luther became what Martin Luther became, because there was legitimate corruption. Um, with the bishops, and then you have all these priests who are supposed to be this, but they're not, and they're uneducated, they're stupid, they're idiots, you know? I mean, it's a mess. It's a total mess. Um, and it gets worse, you know, in the, in the three, 1300s, you have, the, you have the, the dual papacy, you know, the papacy moves to Avignon, and then you get a new pope in Rome, and then you have two popes at the same time, and then to resolve that, they ordain another one, so then you have three popes, and that all has to get figured out. Um, it, it's a mess, you know? And now I talk about this stuff. Some people really recoil and they're like, well, don't talk about the bad stuff. I think it's fascinating. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with talking. I think it's part of our history. It's just, it's part of who we are. And it explains, you know, where we've come from and, and what happened to, to Christianity, you know, through, through the, the 1500s with the Protestant Reformation, why that happened. Um, you know, there's, there's more to get to in that, of course, but, but it's understandable because of, and then it makes sense why the Council of Trent had to happen because it's such chaos. So then you get the Council of Trent in the 1500s and the Council of Trent is like, boom, 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 boom. No exceptions. <laughs> it just cements Catholicism for 500 years, you know, such that it, it, Catholicism barely moves. And that's why you get Vatican II because Vatican II is like, look, we're living out of a council from the 1500s. You know, we're in the 20th century, and life is not like the 1500s. we got to address stuff. And so, boom, you know, you have this explosion of Vatican II saying, we've got to deal with the modern world. We've got we've to address this. Because for 500 years, the church was just sort of insulated. You know, it was very insular. So, obviously, with Vatican II, we have a restoration of the permanent diaconate, um, and so you have a threefold, currently there are three degrees of, um, of holy orders. Um, you have deacon, priest, and bishop. Um, the, the difference, you know, the bishop administratively obviously um, has more authority than the priest. Um, he has the power to ordain. He's also the ordinary minister of the sacrament of confirmation. Um, but in priestly dignity, Vatican II said that priests and bishops were of, of equal dignity. Yeah, and then, but, but deacons aren't, aren't seen as, I mean, they're seen as obviously having sacramental dignity, but, but they're only allowed to, they're able to perform marriages, witness marriages, and they can baptize ordinarily. <clears throat> but th those are the only sacraments they can uh, perform. One of the questions we had is what's the difference between a monk? So in the 500s, you have St. Benedict, in uh, Italy, who founds monasticism in the West, because it was Anthony in the desert in the East who founded monasticism. But in the West, it's St. Benedict. And uh, so you have monasteries that creep up, which is one of the things that preserves society through the Middle Ages, is you have all these monasteries on all these mountains, all these enclaves, 
<coughs> and it's pretty hard for the barbarians to get in. And so you have, it, it was the monasteries, mostly Benedictine, that preserved all of the books that we had and all of the manuscripts, and they were mostly manuscripts. And, uh, you know, they would continue to copy all of these manuscripts throughout all of the ages and preserve. I mean, without, without the monks, you wouldn't have a lot of the treasures of, of, um, of pre-Christian writing as well as a lot of the ancient writings preserved. So when you enter a monastery, you become a monk first, and a monk is not ordained, but a monk is like a nun. Same thing. And, uh, but a monk might be called... To be, a, uh, to be a priest. If, and normally back then, it's like, well, if we need more priests, then we'll ordain one of our guys a priest or get him ordained. Um, yes, and, and all monks, all, all religious, so it would be called women religious and men religious, take a vow, they take the, the three evangelical, or the three, three vow, I don't know, is it evangelical vows? but it's chastity, poverty, and obedience. A diocesan priest does not take a, power of, it does not take a vow of poverty. He takes a, a vow of uh, chastity and obedience. Um, but he, is, he does promise to live a life of simplicity, which isn't too hard given our salary. Um, <laughs> but we don't take a vow of poverty. But if you become a priest of a religious order, they all take vows of poverty. Um, so Jesuits and Franciscans and, you know, all of them take a vow of poverty. Yeah, and then an oblate is, is a, um, well, an oblate is a layperson who, who, uh, who desires to live a particular spirituality. So they become an oblate of, of you know, Benedictine oblate, and they live that spirituality out, okay? Yeah. No, no, they, so Benedict, there's, there's a, a way of, a sort of a, a charism or a way of living as a Benedictine. And um, there's, or a work in prayer, or at labora. So, yeah, so each, each of the Franciscans have a particular spirituality, the Benedictines do, the Dominicans do. And as a layperson, you can become an oblate of, of these orders because you, 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 you have an affinity to that spirituality, right? And it, it really nurtures you and feeds you. And so um, it connects you with, with that religious order. But, that, but you don't take the vows of, you know. Yeah. Okay, any questions? The, in the East, how do they work through that? Oh, yeah, so they, they basically, they just ordained, they picked a new pope and declared the other ones null and void and then returned the papacy to Rome. That's, that's what I remember happening. I mean, that's a short story. You'd have to look it up. I'd have to look it up more. To, there's all kinds of stuff, though. It'd be a, it'd be a great miniseries because it's a lot of, yeah. One other question? A brother is a monk. Um, you know, a brother is uh, uh, a brother is the same thing we call a monk. However, not all brothers are monks. So, a brother would be like of a religious order. A monk is basically 
somebody who's in a monastery, okay? So that's where you get monk from. But like, a, um, a, like, a, like the Christian brothers, <clears throat> they're, they're a religious order, but their charism is not to stay in a monastery, so much as I understand them. They're usually in education and things like that. So if you, if you become a, uh, a member of that religious order, if you're not a priest, you're a brother. Okay? But a monk is in a monastery. No, it's the same thing. You get the uh, nuns you, with women religious. You get you get the same kind of deal with with the 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 other religious orders. You have you have somebody who, um, you know, Saint Benedict desires to live his religion a particular way. You know, first he goes to a cave, and then he so he, he founds this order, and then Saint Francis, you know, he has a particular charism. And so he starts, so people start to follow him. And then there's this whole process of you got to get approval from Rome and you have to be formally recognized as a religious order. And it's the same thing with, with women religious. They begin to, to live, um, you know, so the compliment to Benedict is uh, uh, Scholastica. Thank you. Um, right. Yeah, so the nun, there's all kinds of, yeah, nuns do all kinds of things. Some of them teach, some of them are in healthcare, some of them are in monasteries, uh, some of them are completely cloistered and they never come out. Um, there, there's, uh, there's all kinds of different ministries that women religious and men religious are involved in. Thanks, Joan.